Hey everyone, it's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival, and I'll tell you, I, I really got an education this week on a topic that I always felt was important to prepare for, but I didn't realize just how important, nor how little information is out there about the right way to be ready for this type of scenario. I'm talking about the reality of a nuclear threat, and I was happy to get one of our most requested experts back on the program, Joel Skousen. I know you're going to get as much out of this as I did, so let's go ahead and jump right in now. Bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging. Would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, would you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. No, the specter of nuclear war is not over, and it's still a dangerous time for Americans. Russia still commands an arsenal of nuclear weapons, all pointed at us. North Korea has even threatened my hometown with a nuke. And other nations like Iran are actively working to get nuclear weapons. Let's not forget the option of a suitcase dirty bomb going off in an American city by some extremist terrorist. Now, the threat of a nuclear disaster is very real. And it wasn't so long ago that building nuclear fallout shelters was all the rage. And even I remember the duck and cover drills that we must do in the classrooms. But can the average Joe and Jane really do something to protect themselves from the effects of a nuclear threat? Well, that's what we're here to find out, and specifically, how to create your own fallout shelter against a nuclear disaster. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat and Survival Magazine, with another podcast to help you better prepare in your role as a protector and a patriot. And our guest today on the topic of surviving the effects of a nuclear disaster and building a fallout shelter is Joel Skousen. Joel, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Jeff. It's always good to be with you. Yeah, this is. I'm really looking forward to this, and um, and I love following your work. And we get a we get a lot of people commenting on your stuff on our on our Facebook page and our blog and everything. So I know they're going to get a lot out of this. Now, listen, everyone. If you're if you're new to Joel, Joel is a political scientist by training, specializing in the philosophy of law and constitutional theory. But he's also a highly respected designer of high security residences and retreats and has consulted on and designed self-sufficient and high-security homes throughout North and Central America. He's also a noted author of many books to help the average citizen better plan for self-reliance and self-protection, with titles like Strategic Relocation, The North American Guide to Safe Places, and The High Security Shelter. In addition, he's published an amazing newsletter known as the World Affairs Brief that, for those of you who are really into intel and staying on top of what's really happening in the world and how it affects you, this is a must-have. So what you need to do is go over and check out this training and all the other stuff that Joel has and is consulting over at his website at www.joelskousen.com. And that's S-K-O-U-S-E-N. Okay, Joel, we're going we're gonna to jump right into this. Now, I remember the Cold War. And back in the 80s, we even had movies that were, were threatening everybody and trying to get everybody geared up for it, like, you know, like the day after tomorrow. And it really made us think that nuclear war could happen at any moment and that we could also survive it. Now, I think when it comes to nuclear warfare, I think it's one of those things that people either believe it's never going to happen because we've already gone through all the scares and, you know, it didn't happen before and it's not going to happen again. And besides, we're friends with Russia now. It's not like the Cold War. 
or they probably think that there's really nothing you can do to survive it at all. So why then would anyone consider a physical shelter as protection against this kind of a threat? Well, uh, before I answer that specifically, I want to cover the threats uh, a little bit more relative to what I covered in, in my world affairs brief. Yeah. Because I think this is very important. If people don't have a realistic view of what the danger is, uh, then um, you know they're not going to prepare. So first of all, you mentioned in your introduction the talk about the threat of nuclear su- loose nukes and suitcase bombs and some uh, terrorists getting a hold of one. Actually, this is not a, a viable threat. This was kind of disinformation put out by government to build up the, you know, we better rely on government to save you type threat. Uh, you know, the miniaturization of nuclear weapons and suitcase weapons are the most highly guarded secrets, even in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, by the way, was a carefully crafted, the fall of the Soviet Union was a carefully crafted deception. It never really happened. Communist Party just went underground. They faked their own demise in order to get Western aid and trade. You know, Western companies built up the entire uh, and modernized the entire Russian oil um, system based upon the phony fall. Uh, but their uh, nukes were never loose, um, and the Communist Party never did lose control of what that is, uh, and neither has, has the U.S. Uh, Iran is not a, a viable threat uh, in our lifetime. They don't have the missiles that can reach this, uh, this area. North Korea is a legitimate threat. Uh, but it is totally under the control of China. The United States treats North Korea as if, or China as if it is as concerned as we are about North Korea. But in fact, uh, I think uh, North Korea is, I mean, we have to have something that explains why North Korea is being given a free ride. I mean, they've got nuclear weapons, uh, they've got the missiles to deploy them, we've had no sanctions, we say there's no regime change required, no military option on the table. Compare that to how we treat Iran. You know, it doesn't even have a nuclear weapon, a working weapon yet, and yet we treat it, we've been trying to destroy it for four or five years. The only way to really explain this anomaly is to understand that, uh, you know, our globalists, uh, you know, really are going to allow a nuclear war to happen on this country, uh, and I think North Korea is going to be allowed to be the trigger event for that. That's one of the things I've warned in my World Affairs Brief is that watch out for North Korea when you see a full-scale invasion of the North versus the South with 2 million men versus 50,000 men. There's a high likelihood that the U.S. will have to use tactical nuclear weapons to stop that invasion, and that will give China and Russia the excuse to say, aha, you had first use, and that gives us the excuse to strike preemptively the U.S. Now, a lot of people, uh, you know, have heard about Chinese threats uh, to the mainland, about, you know, we can nuke your cities, etc. But in fact, the Chinese nuclear doctrine is not to nuke civilian areas. Uh, both Russia and China are in a temporary alliance. They're both predator states that want to establish their own control of the world with the new world uh, government. But they're in temporary alliance to take down the West, the Western globalists that control our governments and both political parties. Um, but eventually, Russia and China are going to have to go at it. Uh, and so while they're both preparing, and, and you know, you mentioned that you know, uh, Russia is still a nuclear power. It's more than just still a nuclear power. Russia is still building massive weapons of mass destruction, new nuclear missiles at all times with maneuvering warheads. And we are disarming as we speak. And we don't even have a disarmament treaty with China. That's like 
three gunslingers squaring off, or at least two that are partnered together squaring off against yourself, and then you negotiating a, you know, let's drop our guns with one person, but not his partner. I mean, who in their right mind would do that? <laughs> right. You see, that is yeah. an indication, Jeff. That's an indication, Jeff, that the U.S. actually intends to let this strike happen. Uh, and the proof, as I pointed out in my World Affairs Brief, is PDD-60. This is Presidential Decision Directive 60, 1997, directing our nuclear forces to not rely on launch on warning, but to prepare to absorb a nuclear first strike and then retaliate afterwards. I mean, that's just really stupid if you know what launch on warning is. That's the nuclear doctrine that says when our satellites detect the launch of enemy missiles on our country, that we launch our missiles before they get attacked in their silos. And that means the one that uh, the, the first strike missiles, Russia and China, for example, striking our silos, hits empty silos. And our missiles are on the way and can be retargeted en route to hit existing targets. Now, for the government to hint that you're not going to be able to use launch on warning to prepare to, you know, launch an attack afterwards, and this year got a response from General Butch Neal of the Marine Corps, you know, retaliate with what? A lot of people think that we have, of course, our nuclear triad, our nuclear missile submarines that would still be invulnerable to that first strike, except that in that same year, President Clinton agreed unilaterally with the Russians to keep 50% of our submarines in port at any one time to make sure that it's a gesture of goodwill to show that we're going to make ourselves vulnerable so that you don't have to fear us. Well, you see, that policy is still in vogue. Yes, any of your nuclear missileers and submarines, and they have, there's a policy still today. 50% of our nuclear subs are in port, Kings Bay, Georgia, or Bangor, Bangor, Washington, right outside Seattle, making those first strike targets. And that means we have, you know, at best five or six nuclear subs out there, and the weapons on our nuclear subs are, by the way, incapable of hitting hardened targets like Yamantou Mountain. The Russians are building an area the big, as big as the Washington, D.C. metro area underground. Now, as for disarmament, a lot of Americans don't realize, and your readers don't realize, that the United States has already dismantled and taken off all three warheads on our Minuteman three missiles, 450 of them remaining, and replaced it with a single warhead. That's the kind of disarming we're doing while Russia and China are building new missiles every month. So the threat is very real, but I don't think the threat is to American civilian targets. Russia and China, they're going to take down the bully of the world, and believe me, our war on terror has given us the reputation of the bully of the world as we march around the world and create hatred, not against our freedoms, but against our government's intervention. Mm-hmm. And Russia and China are going to take advantage of that. I think there is going to be a preemptive nuclear strike that will be triggered by the war on Korea. So if your listeners see a full-scale invasion of North Korea to the south, I predict that within a week you'll have nuclear war. So that's a really solid warning. And what good is nuclear war, you know, in terms of uh, what does that have to do with your own protection if you haven't prepared? Very little. The point is, you know, a nuclear war does not destroy everything. You could put all of the nuclear weapons that exist in the world today on top of Mount St. Helens, and you wouldn't remove as much material as that volcano did when it blew its stack. So the the concept of nuclear war destroying the whole world really is an anti-nuclear piece of of propaganda. Uh, What you do need to worry about, you know, is the fallout that will be, uh, you know, depending on the wind patterns, going around um, 
the globe. But fallout from nuclear weapons really only lasts about two weeks to three weeks, uh, depending on, you know, if there's prolonged nuclear weapons going on, then, then it could last longer. But any given circumstance, radiation, gamma radiation only lasts about two weeks. So it's very survivable. It does not cause a nuclear winter. It does not permanently contaminate the soil like a uh, Fukushima-style nuclear uh, a power plant meltdown, which is, you know, um, a very dangerous thing, although it really isn't the policy of Russia and China to hit nuclear power plants because, remember, they want to blackmail the West into submission with a nuclear first strike, not destroy the West. Russia and China or all communist countries have never been able to sustain themselves economically. They need the West. They need the intervention. They just want to blackmail us into submission with a first strike. And so it's not going to be the end of the world, a complete nuclear holocaust. It is something that if you prepare for, that you can survive. Now, that said, in answer to your question, I do not believe in preparing what people call bunkers or blast shelters. There are blast shelters out there on the market, these burying-the-ground type tanks with blast valves. And here's what I say to that. First of all, a blast area is only at a maximum five miles in a circular uh, target area from any military target. If you're outside of that, all you need is fallout protection, not blast protection. And if you're inside the five-mile radius to a military base or a first-strike target, like in Seattle or Kings Bay, Georgia, or Jacksonville, Florida, or uh, Omaha, Nebraska, or San Diego, California. If you're within five miles of those areas, you need to move. You know, that's why I wrote the book, Strategic Relocation. Why sit there and spend an extra $100,000 for a blast shelter with blast valves when you could take that $100,000 and move to a safer area? That's the smarter strategy where you only have to prepare for fallout. Yeah, well, in, in one fell swoop, I think you just went through a whole bunch of myths, misinformation, a lot of stuff that I, I obviously didn't know. But, it, you know, it's interesting because that, that almost makes nuclear, you know, we'll say, we'll use the word war, but it almost makes it a safe military tool for other nations if it's not literally like, you know, we are used to seeing the propaganda for it where there's just this massive explosion and all of a sudden everything within, you know, half a state is just a barren wasteland now. And, um, you know, certainly, you know, movies and television shows have done have done quite a bit to to kind of resurrect the whole zombie um, aspect of that. Um, and, and with it only being, I mean, especially with military powers, knowing that it's it's a short lived winter that people will survive from and then they can reap the rewards of that kind of a military strike. It, it definitely makes it almost like a, you know, a, a legitimate, you know, uh, a tool for war and yeah, for, it's for changing. going to be used. I mean, our government plans to survive, and that's why they're building bunkers deep underground. They're not telling you, though, why they're building bunkers, and they're not doing that for terrorism, Jeff. You know, that's for because they know that right. there are strikes coming. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's. Um, so, so that's that's great information right there. I mean, and and I've and I have your book, The Strategic Relocation, and it's got it's so filled with with so much research. I mean, it really is a step by step plan for somebody to really look at at the right place to check out. And even if it, even if it's not necessarily for where you're living, which is the which would be the best case scenario, also if you are looking for like another location, a safety retreat or something like that, there's a lot of great information in there about about selecting it. It's not just about finding a really cool place with a with a river and a horse and things like that, but there's there's great information there for the entire country. 
But let's talk Actually, about con- contingency planning, Jeff, because most people can't move, frankly, right. because they're tied to their jobs. But I talk about if you can't move, how you relocate within a metro area, how you prepare an escape plan, you know, when the metro area goes down and, uh, you know, live to survive another day. So I cover a lot of different contingencies in the book. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about, I mean, so let's talk about this 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 fallout period that will happen after a nuclear strike. And so, um, you know, for somebody to be able, I mean, I'm assuming that your local, you know, trailer park is probably not going to fare all that well in this. So when you're locating a fallout shelter location, it seems to me that that biggest, that seems to be the biggest stumbling block. And we've talked before about that strategic relocation strategies. And again, check out the book, everybody. It really is solid for it. But when it comes to the actual physical planning out of the shelter, where should it be relative to where my property is? And what's the best option if I don't want to dig a giant hole in my backyard and build a fallout shelter and try and convince my neighbors that it's it's not it's not a shelter, it's really just a pool um, what is the best option for us to, to for the location of us building a, a fallout shelter? Well, I'm a real believer that fallout shelters should be built as integral to a house. At the very least, you've got to have a building over the top, and that's because you've got to have ventilation stacks coming out of a shelter. And every one of these in-ground tank shelters that you bring in on a great big semi-truck with a big crane that lifts us in your background. I mean, clearly everybody in the world is going to know where that shelter is. And if it's out in your backyard, you know, you've got a hatch out there, but what if you go to use that hatch and you've got 50 people sitting around waiting to get into that <laughs> shelter? I mean, how are you going to get in? It's just not possible. It always kills me whenever I see them putting in those things right in their backyard. Yeah. Yeah. And so... uh you know, even out in the rural country, uh, you know, I've, uh, you know, I'm a relocation expert. I, you know, talk to a lot of people in different parts of the country and the people, the places that are safe places where people are putting in shelters. I mean, they don't need to go bring in the big tank shelter and put it in there because everybody, even in a rural community knows about this. Uh, and it's really a problem. One of the things that I think I want to talk about relative to the shelter placement mm-hmm. as well as being part of the house is the fact that in the threats, Russia and China intend to soften up the United States with an EMP strike about 15 to 10 minutes before the physical nuclear strike. And that really is going to create chaos because without, with the total grid down, and remember it takes more than just one weapon to do a high-altitude nuclear strike. To blanket the entire grid, it takes six uh, high-altitude nuclear weapons. So forget about Iran, forget about North Korea, forget about a terrorist nation putting up uh, an EMP bomb. Uh, it doesn't work. It takes at least six, and only Russia and China have the capacity to do that. But what it means is within three days, everyone's going to be starving, not going to be any infrastructure, no electricity, no heat, especially if this happens in the winter. People are going to be panicking. They're going to be going house to house, starting to pillage for food. So one of the key things about a shelter, not only do you need 10 to 12 inches of concrete overhead to protect again. The average fallout that gives you a protection factor of at least 40. I mean, it reduces the radiation to 140th of what it normally would be. You need to have it concealed. I'm a real believer, Jeff, in you know the Second Amendment and being able to defend yourself. But I'm not going to sit there and mow down hungry people, you know, to protect my home. What I'm going to do is get out of the way and hide. And that's why you need a concealed. Uh, 
a safe room a sh- that is a fallout shelter as well so that you can literally leave your doors open so they don't have to break it down, leave a few things out to pillage, and they move on to the next house. But I think it's a very important strategy to have a way to get out of the way when you have massive social unrest. It doesn't mean you won't defend yourself if there's a hardened criminal that gets to the door of your shelter and finds it and starts to get through. Uh, you can't. But it should be concealable, and that means it really needs to be below ground level. I mean, you can build a shelter if you have a 10,000-square-foot man, and you can hide a room in the middle of that, and nobody can probably find it. But for most normal people, with a small, regular suburban house, you're going to need to do something below ground. And that means an addition, either putting an addition to your garage or something, and that, you know, a garage is a great way because you already have a concrete slab. Nobody expects there to be a basement under a garage. If you put a shelter below the garage and have a 10 to 12-inch reinforced concrete ceiling there, then that works very, very well. And the vents can be concealed within the walls of the garage going up, and the filters can be in the attic so they're not visible, or in a cabinet, in a workshop, in a garage, so they're not visible. There's a lot of really good techniques that I put in my book, The Secure Home and the High Security Shelter book. And these are do-it-yourself books which tell people how to do a lot of these things. But I'm convinced you need to make sure that you you get a shelter integral to a house or the building so that you don't have to go across the backyard to get to a shelter or even to an outbuilding. Sometimes when there's social unrest, that can be an untenable situation. You won't be able to get to your shelter if, uh, you know, it's not safe to go outside. And so also, I mean, if you do have a basement already, um, looking at that as the op- the option of creating a um like a room there or, um, you know, being able to, because th- that almost seems like you can wall something off and nobody can really tell how big basements are, you know, unless they've already seen them, it seems. That's precisely what we did in the book, the High Security Shelter book. It, you know, the, the secure home is 700 pages. It's got everything from self-service yeah. solar generators to safe rooms from new construction and remodeling. But we did this with my son, who's the structural engineer, Andrew. Uh, we did this book, the High Security Shelter book, specifically designed a self-contained block shelter that you can build inside a basement, complete with detailed designs on how to do a concealed entrance and safety vault doors and the ventilation and having its own electricity inside uh, in a basement because that's the cheapest way for people to do it. If you do an addition to your house or under a new garage, you're talking at least thirty to $40,000 to build a uh, just a fallout shelter with reinforcement and security and concealment. If you do it in the basement existing already, it's about three to four thousand for the construction, hmm. so it's much more doable and much more within the price range of ordinary people. Yeah, and when you look at the cost of bunkers and things like that, I mean, the lowest I've seen them are pretty much in the the high twenties, mid thirties, and that's for that's for bargain basement type bunkers. Right. So even yeah, most you, of them are seventy five to eighty thousand without installation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great. Well, listen, everybody, we're, t- we're talking with Joel Skousen of joelskousen.com about how to develop a nuclear fallout plan for you and your family. And obviously, we have a lot more to get to uh, coming up. So we are going to check out the simple steps for constructing a makeshift fallout shelter yourself. Also, how to protect yourself from breathing and contaminants following a disaster and often overlooked features every fallout shelter should have. But first, check out this special message. <laughs> 
In any disaster, crisis, or attack, your life and the life of those you love could solely rest on the survival gear you've acquired. Do you have the proper gear to protect you from the threats you'll face? Whether it's preparing your home against the destruction and mayhem of a city in chaos, or you're bugging out to a safer location when a natural disaster forces you from your home, the supplies you have right now could ensure your survival or seal your fate. Don't take the risk. Claim your free copy of our exclusive guide, Survival Gear Secrets, at survivalgearsecrets.com and discover the seven-phase survival gear plan every family must prepare for or face the consequences. Five no-bullshit warning signs that a collapse is headed your way, so you're already in action long before your neighbors even know what hit them. And how to know exactly when it's safer to stay at home and shelter in place. Or get in the family bug out mobile and get the hell out of Dodge. Your fellow citizens may be fine with sleeping in a crowded stadium waiting for FEMA to hand them a granola bar, juice box, and a blankie. But you know that no one can protect your family better than you can. If you're properly prepared with the right supplies and equipment to ensure your survival. Don't wait until it's too late. Find out what's missing from your survival gear plan by grabbing your free copy of Survival Gear Secrets now at www.survivalgearsecrets.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with Joel Skousen of joelskousen.com. Discuss the whys and hows of protecting you and your family from a nuclear disaster and the fallout effects. We're about to dive into the nuts and bolts of putting this together and your own structure plan. So let's go ahead and get back to our interview now. Okay, Joel, so we've located our fallout shelter location. What are the minimal physical elements that it's going to take to to put this thing together? I mean, your your book, The High Security Shelter, is is massive, and there's lots of – there's like all the details you need are inside those programs that you have. And, and you talk about these 12 inches of protection. Those are, you know, 12-inch cinder blocks are pretty easy to come by, but what else do I need to get started, and what's the best way for somebody to put something together in place in relatively, like, on a budget? Okay. Well, the first thing is to understand what kind of layouts you're going to need in a shelter, and this is very, very important because a lot of people, you know, talk about Crescent Kearney's emergency, you know, you park your car over there and you dig out underneath it and you, you know, kick the elements out and you... But, you know, the problem with that is that you're living in a dirt hole for a couple of weeks with your family. You're trying to have sanitation, cooking, living, sleeping, and the water seeping into the, you know, makeshift shelters really are better than nothing if that's all you've got. But what I'm saying is if, you know, I think we've got at least five years because Russia and China are not ready to strike until the beginning of the next decade when they're first uh, top-of-the-line weapon systems are coming online. I, don't, I think we've got at least five years, and so people have the time to save and prepare and to build a decent shelter. Of course, you when you're going to do a shelter, you're going to have to think about in a basement, which is the most, let's talk about that, the most economical. You're going to remember that a basement ceiling is at least eight feet tall. That's the minimum, you know, according to code. And so what we're going to do is lower that basement ceiling a foot, and in the high security shelter, but we have full architectural plans and you do need the reinforcing details so that you know how much rebar to put in to support this concrete ceiling. It isn't so much that 12 inches blocks are necessary, first of all, on the outside walls because you've already got concrete and you've got the earth burned with earth. And so that's not going to leak radiation. If you're going to pick apart uh, a portion of the basement that has a window in it, for example, you're going to want to block that up. 
uh, with concrete block as well so that no radiation gets through the window and so that's also secure. But along the the inside basement wall, uh, the new wall that you're going to construct, even 8-inch block is sufficient because radiation is going to be coming at an angle from the roof, laying on the roof, and it's going to be slicing through the block at least 12 inches in its diagonal thing, so even 8-inch block, and you're going to want to fill those voids in the block if you're using hollow concrete block with cement so that you get the full radiation protection. Um, and then, essentially, you're going to build a seven-foot wall all around the, uh, the two walls that are not part of the existing basement corner where you start with, and generally a corner of the basement is best, or a wall off a whole portion of the basement, and you've got three walls that are uh, the original concrete, and you build a concrete block wall and shorten the basement. But you're going to make that interior wall only seven feet high, and we're going to use steel decking, heavy-gauge, 16-gauge or 14-gauge steel decking, uh, to span over the top of that seven-foot wall underneath the, the typical joist that you have in the basement. Then what we do is we put rebar in the slot. The, the, the steel decking is kind of like a W shape, and there are deep portions, and then there are high portions. You put uh, rebar in the, uh, in the depressions of the, and then you put a, a concrete layer, a couple of inches of concrete in there, and that makes this very rigid. We specify in the book getting um, uh, steel decking that has little gripping surfaces on it so that whatever you pour that slurry of two inches concrete and it hardens, it grips to the deck. And uh, what this provides is a very strong reinforced seating that will hold up up to 10 feet in span the concrete block that you're now going to slide in from the outside of your shelter. You're going to slide in on the top of the seating that you built uh, 10-inch uh, solid block or block that you have uh, filled to the core. That gives you a total of 12 inches. If you span larger than 10 feet, you know, you're going to want to put a beam down the center of the room with a post, you know, to keep that seating from sagging. And that's why I say you need some of the engineering that we put into the book. The book's only $25, so it's uh, compared to the expense you put into the shelter. Having engineered plans for that is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also you're talking about ways to, um, you know, you definitely, this is something that you want to have a concealable entrance to. So people do get into your home that they can, you know, they might go down even go down in the basement. They might be able to even find some food or something like that, but they won't see you behind, you know, in that, in that wall. They won't know that there's a room there. What's the best way that you've seen or, or some of the ways that you've designed or whatever to, to try and conceal that, that location? Well, first of all, let's talk about concealment strategies. What I really like is double concealment, and that means that you provide a secret room in front of the secret room, even if it's a small, narrow storage room with shelves on it, uh, and it's got some food storage and other things. So people come, and you have a concealed room, uh, you know, like a cabinet, a swinging cabinet, and we use a lot of hidden pins in the floor and in the ceiling so that, you know, you don't see any visible, visible hinges and the cabinet just pivots outward. Uh, and it's very, very easy to conceal that way. But if they find that room, they oh, we found this room, and it's got some things to steal, and they steal the thing. But, you know, very few people will think of finding a secret door within a secret room that leads to another secret room to see how you have that satisfaction, psychology of I found it. Um, and that really gives you a lot of protection. Now, the the real concealed room, your safe room, should have a high-security door. And... 
you know, you can go to a vault door, such as what Fort Knox makes, and we help design with that company what's called an inside release mechanism. Most vault doors, of course, are meant only to open from the outside and are not meant to lock people in because there's no way to get out or unlock that vault door once you're inside. But uh, Fort Knox and Liberty Safe, uh, who does uh, vault doors, we've uh, designed an inside release mechanism so that you can lock yourself in and still get out. Now, short of a vault door, which is three to $5,000, it's much cheaper to go with a, a 16-gauge steel utility door and uh, in a in a 14 or 12, even a 12-inch jam, this is very strong metal. Uh, you know, a 14-gauge door uh, is very, very strong. It will even resist uh, 22 shells alone. And we developed, we tell it in the book how to do this, how to take open the top, remove the insulation, and fill the door with gravel. And then you can get a normal utility door, not a normal one, because normal ones have a sandwich foam, which is glued on metal on either side. We're talking about a good, solid utility door, such as made by Dean Steel of Texas, which can be hardened uh, either by putting a bulletproof plate on the front, which you can get from Heflin Steel in, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, or just by filling it with gravel. And that becomes uh, bulletproof to handgun rounds. No, that makes a lot of sense. You know, um, we talk about uh, survival air, and basically, I mean, let's face it. I mean, you can't. You need to be able to breathe inside this thing. So if you just create a box, you know, you're going to be without any sort of ventilation. It's going to be uh, a short-lived stay inside of there. And we've talked about this before on our on our broadcast about survival air systems and things like that. What are the ventilation requirements for a blast shelter, or not? Sorry, not a blast shelter, but a fallout shelter. And how do I prevent my family from breathing the contaminants even after we've survived the aftermath of the event itself? Um, how, rather than just boxing ourselves into the basement, what are, what are the requirements for a, like some being able to breathe inside of there? Well, it's really not very much. If you take an eight by twelve shelter, you know, you need to run. A, uh, and I usually use three inch vent lines coming in, and you've got to have an exhaust coming out of the, the shelter as well. Sometimes that can be just under the crack of the high-security door, let the air exit there. If you use the door as the exhaust, you need to make sure that the air coming in is at the far end of the shelter so that the fresh air travels across the room before it exits. So you have intake air vents, and three inches sufficient. And believe it or not, you only have to run a, uh, a 12-volt fan, if that's what you're using with your battery source, 12- or 24-volt fan, about 10 minutes uh, twice or three times a day in order to freshen the air. So it isn't very much to have survival air. Hmm. Uh, normally a shelter being underground or being having concrete walls won't absorb a lot of heat. So you don't have a, uh, an excess heat problem unless you really pack the shelter with people, and then you might have to run the fan uh, more. But what I prefer is to make sure that the fan, the intake air comes from the basement itself rather than from outside. First of all, that's safer. The intake is not going to get blown away unless the whole house gets blown away. But it also allows the house to act as a primary filter so you don't get major debris into the house. It protects the filter from getting clogged up. Uh, if any fallout, broken windows, for example, gets into the house, that filter, any HEPA filter, H-E-P-A, HEPA filter, will take care of any radiation dust. If you want, 
biological chemical weapons, and sometimes people want this because of the danger of smoke, a shelter properly designed, you can burn the house down around it and you'll survive in it. But you've got to make sure that your filter system can filter out smoke, or at least if you're, you know, otherwise you've just got to shut down your, your filtration uh, if there's smoke coming in. But, you know, even Honeywell puts out for their filters a carbon insert they have big circular filters are about 12 inches tall and about 14 inches around. And they have a carbon insert and a zeolate filter inside as well that you can buy. And I have the sources uh, in the book. But those, for about $300, will give you nearly chemical weapons protection. Not quite as good as the military filter. It won't last as long, but it will do the trick and even filter out smoke. And don't forget that people can buy, you know, surplus fallout uh, or... Um, gas masks uh, of military grade, but you can also, for $30 at Home Depot, get paint-grade respirators, the kind that painters use, and they're very good not only for smoke, but also for almost all chemicals, including tear gas, and they will, won't last quite as long as a military-grade fallout shelter, but it's much better than nothing and certainly the cheapest thing that you can get. Yeah, yeah, I love those things, too. You know, there, there, I think there are always, whether it's a bunker or whatever it is, I think there are a lot of things that people don't necessarily consider that goes, in, that goes in there. I think they always think like, you know, food, water, obviously, and then like they stack their AR-15s in there. But what are some of the things that, um, from your experience, should be included inside of the shelter in order to be prepared for the realities of being, of living in close proximity inside of a shelter cut off from everything around you? Well, one of the things that you need, the essential things, and, and let me just say as a side note here, I never use in my work uh, the word bunker. It's just so inflammatory yeah. that people, you know, think a military response. I always use safe room or tornado shelter. You know, most people in the United States are in tornado country, and so, you know, when you're building these things that people do, you know, say, I'm building a tornado shelter, and that really goes a long way to diffusing type of things. But it's very, very important to know, first of all, how long is this radiological event going to happen? Or if there's social illness, when it's safe to come out. So one of the things I like to do, and these are cheap now on the Internet, little battery-powered wireless uh, cameras that you can put outside the shelter, outside the home, so that you'll know when the social unrest is passed without coming out of your shelter. So having a very inexpensive, less than a couple hundred dollars camera system uh, you know, in the shelter goes a long way. The other thing is radio communication, being able to find out what's going on in the rest of the world when the event is over or when other things are simulating. So having a shortwave ham band radio, of course, is only as good as the antenna that you've got. You've got to have an antenna coming out of that shelter. And if you're at home, you know, it's still going to be preserved. You get that antenna even into the attic of a home that doesn't have a metal roof, and you can still pick up... Uh, most uh, shortwave broadcast, uh, you know, as far away from Europe. You need, for example, separate sleeping facilities in a shelter. Can you imagine coming in with several family members and then you've got a crying baby in there that is just irritating the death out of people and crying, or, or an uncontrolled child who's whining and complaining and nobody's getting any sleep and people's nerves are getting on end. You need compartmentalization, enough space that you can wall off some areas for sleeping and preferably two different areas, so that if you have somebody sick, they're not contaminating the rest of uh, people. You need some minimal uh, counter space for cooking facilities with uh, 
you know, a sink, even if you don't have plumbing in the thing, you can put a five-gallon bucket, you know, and save the waste uh, in the five-gallon bucket. But you need a place to prepare uh, food. You need internal electricity as well. And, that, and I don't mean, you know, even if you have a solar system and a generator outside, that can be cut off if it's external to the shelter. Even if you have those things, I recommend having at least four high-power storage batteries inside that run your ventilation fan and your LED lighting so that that is guaranteed, no matter what happens, to give you at least a month of electricity of those two sources and, you know, can even run some DVDs or small televisions and things uh, to give people some uh, entertainment value while they're in a shelter situation. And, of course, you need... um, Minimum living facilities during the day, you need places to sit. You don't want to be sitting on a hard concrete floor, so you have some folding chairs in there, preferably padded folding chairs, or even a hide-a-bed. Some lounge on a couch, a table for people to play games or to eat on. These can be very compact. But you should think, in terms of two to four people, you want a minimum of an 8 by 12 uh, room and I prefer 24 by 24 just so that you have you've got to remember that it takes quite a bit almost a third of the space of a shelter just to stockpile the food and the storage items that you're going to need I also like to see a small uh, shop table with tools in the shelter so that you can repair things some wrenches tools a little electrical tester anything so that if something goes wrong you're not just sitting dead in the water without any tools to be able to repair basic things it's also very important for people to have an alternate exit out of any safe room. Uh, whether you get it's the door is going to get penetrated, there's people out there, and you know if you get a gas-powered uh, uh, carborundum blade saw, you know you can go through any metal door, any vault door, in a matter of minutes. And so it is good to have an alternate exit. Yes, a tunnel is great if you can go to that expense and get a tunnel out to a safe area. But even in our book, we talk about a, um, a window well exit, and basically you put a window well outside uh, this shelter with a, uh, an opening in the concrete, 24 by 24, that goes into this window well. It's a double-stacked window well, and it's covered over then with a, um, a waterproof uh, lid that opens inward. It's propped up with stilts and things. You break the stilts, and it flops down, and six inches of sand comes down, a little bit of dirt into the bottom, and you can climb out. More sophisticated versions of this, you can put a fake air conditioning unit, um, you know, a hollow one outside uh, over the top of this window well system, and uh, then you can peer out and see if it's safe, tilt the thing open to get out. Lots of different ways to develop a safe exit from these that nobody could find. I love the uh, the air conditioner uh, <laughs> the air conditioner trick. Sounds awesome. Yeah, that's great. Well, Joel, I'm, I'm blown away. Um, I, I got to say, my introduction to this pretty much described me for the most part because I think that, you know, again, it, it, it seems like, um, you know, any sort of a nuclear threat whatsoever, uh, although we, you know, because we do hear in the, in the media that we are we're scaling down, like we've we've learned our lesson, you know, it's that a nuclear wasteland is not something that anybody wants. And so, therefore, it's probably pretty unlikely that there's going to be any sort of nuclear attack whatsoever. And I think given all the nuclear power plants that we have in in the United States, I think a lot of people don't even realize are, are even close to them, Seem after we've seen Fukushima, that seems like a very realistic uh, you know, threat that we could we could have to deal with. Is it is it still the same type of um, 
think of a scenario with these, with all of the nuclear power plants that we have and, and everything is, are we still looking at the same threats or is preparing for, for that a lot different? Well, it is a lot different because there are long-term radiological effects, um, you know, the last 30 years from a nuclear power plant meltdown. And uh, fortunately for Fukushima, most of that uh, was subjected to the uh, almost infinitesimal dilution effect of thousands of miles in air and water that, you know, keep that from coming in appreciable amounts to the West Coast. There's a lot of hype about it, uh, particular websites, but in fact, you know, I keep tabs with a lot of meteor, uh, meteor radiate, uh, radiological meteor of that, and it, there's not a threat right now from, from Fukushima. Uh, but in any case, what I'm saying, yes, if you're downwind, and that's very important to understand, if you're downwind from a nuclear power plant, that's a real problematic thing. You really need, uh, uh, you know, major fallout projection, probably even more than 12 inches. But remember that it's very unlikely that the Russians or Chinese will, ta- ta- uh, will target nuclear power plants because remember they don't want to contaminate the West to make it unlivable. They want to harness mm-hmm. it keep it productive. Yeah. And that's important to understand. So that isn't to say that it won't uh, accidentally happen. And remember that modern power plants are much safer than the Fukushima plant in terms of backup potential and keeping electricity uh, going and, and scramming and and, uh, and keeping those things from, uh, from melting down. Um, but there are at least, I would say, 30% of our plants that are of the age of the Fukushima style that are very vulnerable. And a lot of people, when they call me for consultation, talk about the nuclear power plants all along the Tennessee Valley Authority. And I say, well, watch, watch where the wind flows. You are, you know, uh, west of those plants. Uh, most of the wind is coming from the south or from the west, very rarely from the east. And so your chances of getting contaminated to that extent are very, very slim. So it's important to watch where the primary uh, flows are because this is expensive to try to protect against, uh, you know, nuclear radiation from a, a power plant. Yeah, great. Well, Joel, uh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I mean, you've, you've taken a lot of time with us today and given us a lot of great information, and I, and I really appreciate it. Listen, everyone, um, as you can see, there's, there is a lot, there's a lot to this. And that's why when you see any of the, the books that Joel has and the designs that he's gone through, they're very, very detailed. He lays everything out in a very step-by-step uh, very step-by-step method that anybody can understand. So you don't need to be an engineer to, f- to figure all this stuff out. And a lot of it really does com- come down to the strategics of it. It's, it's be- having a strategic plan for what to do, not just about the physical structure of things, but actually taking a look at the whole threat that you face and finding a better way to be able to protect your family by pre-planning. And so some of that's physical, but some of it's also strategically where you are located and how you prevent these things from from even affecting you in the first place. So a lot of great information there. So please go over to his website, check it out. And as you can see, just staying up up to date on the, the reality of what the threats are and what's really happening in the world, the, the World Affairs Brief is definitely an, an absolute resource that you should have. So you can go check out all of that over at Joel's website at www.joelskousen.com. And again, that's S-K-O-U-S-E-N. And until our next Modern Combat Survival broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying train hard, stay safe, prepare now. This is 
ultimate modern combat and survival. survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash modern combat and survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. <laughs>